welcome to my mommy's podcast. This podcast is brought to you by The Good Kitchen. Have you ever wished you could have delicious and healthy meals on the table in mere minutes? The Good Kitchen answers that problem. So they provide quality sourced meals, including healthy school lunches, right to your door. Their meats are grass-fed and pastured, and they use freshly sourced produce as well. And they don't just send you the ingredients like some delivery services. They send you the fully prepared chef-quality meals. You can check them out at wellnesswama.com forward slash go forward slash good kitchen. This episode is also brought to you by Primal Kitchen, all the good kitchens today. It's founded by my friend Mark Sisson of Mark's Daily Apple. The Primal Kitchen is now my source for some of my favorite kitchen staples. So if you haven't tried their delicious avocado oil mayo, including their chipotle mayo, you're seriously missing out. I have made my own mayo for years and years because there were never any good options to buy that didn't have vegetable oils in them. And now there are. Primal Kitchen has completely changed that with their products. They also have some delicious pre-made salad dressings and we use their products all the time. You can check them out at primalblueprint.com and if you use the code wellnessmama, you get 10% off any order. Welcome to the Healthy Moms Podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com and today's guest is going to be a real treat and there's a little bit of a pun intended. Uh, Ali Bazari is a culinary scientist, an author, an educator, and he co-founded a company called Pilot R&D, which is a culinary research and development company. And I met uh, Ali recently, and he, I heard a presentation of his and was absolutely blown away. So as a chef with a PhD in food biochemistry, he has helped really lead the charge in changing the way we think about cooking by teaching and developing curriculum at top universities and Ivy League schools and even the Culinary Institute, Institute of America. And he uh, has worked with many top-level chefs, and he now actually helps companies develop food. So welcome, Ali. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Katie. Good to talk to you. It's going to be fun. So I must admit, I first saw your name on the lunchtime slot of a schedule at a conference, and it was something along the lines of it was going to deal with food science. And I'll admit that I rolled my eyes a little bit and figured that might not be the most interesting of topic. And I will also admit that I was 100% wrong because your presentation was probably one of the most fascinating I've heard in a long time. And I'm hoping we can translate all those topics from the PowerPoint presentation you had into audio only so that everybody listening can benefit. So to start, let's break through some of the dogma around food. You say that you are food agnostic. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, um, and, and to your, your first thought of uh, how unsexy the phrase food science sounds, um, I, I don't blame you at all for not being excited about uh, the prospect of something described that way. And um, when, we talk, when we talk about food science um, as a phrase, uh, food science as a field came out of basically World War II, um, where uh, all of a sudden we were figuring out how to feed massive numbers of people from centralized hubs um, in order to cope with an industrial post-war world. And so a lot of food science was geared towards uh, how do we make food that lasts a long time so it doesn't spoil, and how do we be able to distribute food all over the country and all over the world in a way that doesn't kill people? Um, so food science sort of very quickly became the science of like potato chips and canned tomatoes. And what's unfortunate is that study, um, it's opened up so many amazing things that we know now about how food works um, and how food becomes delicious and, and how um, you can cook anything. Um, but the field of food science has still stayed grounded in the like big retail industrial food complex kind of way of looking at food. 
Um, and uh, coming from a background of being a chef and, and working in these you know, amazing fine dining, like top restaurants around the world, um, food has always been more of a vibrant, um, dynamic, delicious thing rather than a, a problem to be solved. So um, when I say that I'm, I'm food agnostic or, or nutrition agnostic, it means I, I will eat anything that's good. I will eat anything that's delicious, whether it's a, a you know insane five-hour tasting menu at a three Michelin star restaurant, or it's really really good tacos out of the back of a truck, or it's like the best uh, you know early season stone fruit from where I live in in Sonoma County. I will eat anything, and uh, since my job is a lot of um, developing recipes and uh, restaurant ideas and food product ideas for other people, for other companies, our, our, my and my partner's goal is to play in whatever sandbox that, uh, the, our client creates, you know, if somebody is trying to avoid gluten or if somebody is trying to focus on, uh, plant foods, or if somebody really, really believes that for them, high protein, uh, low carb is, is the, the type of food that they want to eat. We can make anything taste good with our approach to food. So, um, yeah, our, our focus is you tell us what you need and we will make it enjoyable. Yeah, that's so cool. So let's delve into that, how you think of food differently than most people, because I think a lot of us think of food in terms of, unfortunately, a lot of people uh, like good and bad, or there's a lot of guilt around certain foods or certain types of food, um, or other people think of food very utilitarian in broad categories like macros, there's protein, fat, and carbs, and that's it. And you really opened up an entirely different side of food with the biochemical. So let's talk through that. How do you think of food differently than the rest of us? We call our our field, our methodology, we call it culinary science, which is basically taking all of the amazing science, the foundation of knowledge that people have created over you know more than half a century studying food and funneling it into actual real food rather than things that are only produced by touching stainless steel. So the, the way that that works is by having a foot grounded in two worlds equally. Uh, the world of the chef as somebody who, I, I don't think there's anybody out there who has better hands-on just gut instincts when it comes to how food works, how to make food delicious, how to make food wholesome. Um, and then also pair that with the vision and the understanding of a scientist who can see all of the components of food and how they fit together and, and understand all of the underlying patterns. So, um, uh, we, we like to talk about um, food as uh, sort of a picture-in-picture, picture, right? If, if you imagine um, like, like macroscopic and microscopic at the same time, you're, you're holding a mango and you're eating that mango and you're like, wow, this, this mango is incredibly juicy, it's super sweet, it's got a lot of nice acidity, it's got a lot of great aroma, I can feel all the fibers getting stuck in my teeth, just everything that goes into eating a mango there is a way that we approach food that involves understanding how that mango is sweet, how that aroma um, is so pleasing, how the mango got that beautiful, bright, orangey-yellow color that doesn't require a bunch of weird, complex chemical names, doesn't require uh, memorizing a bunch of formulas. Um, and it was funny when you mentioned people who take a very utilitarian sort of basic view of food, looking at just macros, looking at 
what does this have in terms of proteins, water, sugars, complex carbs, lipids, et cetera? For us, what's, what's amazing is those exact same building blocks that are already in the cultural conversation and are uh, oftentimes the thing that we feel really guilty or proud of when we look at the back of a package, those same fundamental macro components, the, those macronutrients, the, um, the building blocks of food are the things that also dictate whether food is going to taste good or whether it's going to be crispy or whether it's going to be juicy or whether it's going to have a lot of aroma. Um, those, those things that you read on the back of a nutrient label aren't just, you know, what kind of guilty conscience day you're going to have or not. They are the actual recipe makers for everything that you will ever cook, eat, or serve again. Yeah. So let's go through some of those. I feel like your understanding of food lets you create these really novel ways of using them. And in your presentation, you talked about things like watermelon seeds and how that can be used in food or roasted red peppers and all these different ways that we would just consider these maybe an ingredient in a stir fry, but you actually are using them in biochemical ways that make them really interesting. So what are those building blocks that are, are broken down and how can we use them differently? Yeah. Um, so the, the basic idea of this uh, way of looking at food is that literally everything from a piece of celery to a, uh, a, a shrimp or um, a gluten-free muffin is made of just eight different building blocks. They're uh, water, sugars, complex carbs, so things like starch um, and pectin and, and so on, proteins, lipid, uh, minerals, gases, and heat. Um, heat obviously isn't a physical thing, but it, it plays just as much a role in making food what it is um, as, as the others. So each of those seven things, which are already things that we're talking about uh, when it comes to food, um, the cool thing is each of them only has like a handful of tricks. They have like a universal personality that they just, they exhibit that personality in everything. So what I mean by that is, you know, let's pick sugar. Sugar is the current demon of the decade. Sugar is the thing that we're now um, as as a as a society that's always thinking about the next uh, health trend and the next health findings, sugar is the Freddy Krueger that's going to pop out of the can of Coke and kill us. Sugar is interesting because it it does five things in our food. It it does things like helping to retain water. It 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 breaks down and becomes brown when things caramelize and get like roasty brown um, in an oven or on a grill. Sugar is what microbes ferment uh, for the most part. So when you're talking about everything from pickles to kombucha or beer, a lot of that is coming from, from sugar being broken down and, and so on. And, and the interesting thing is sugar does those five jobs always, and it can only do those five jobs, and it does those five jobs in literally everything. So what I mean by that is sugar um, is just as important to eating a stick of celery as it is to eating like a 32 gram per serving popsicle. Sugar is at play in every single food that is out there. Anything that can turn brown in an oven, anything that has even mild sweetness is coming from sugar. And I'm not advocating that eat people eat a ton of sugar. I'm just trying to give people x-ray vision um, to see that sugar, even in tiny quantities in, in different foods, um, plays a similar set of rules. And so when you realize that these rules are, they're, they're nothing incredibly sciencey there. It's not, 
it's not something that takes uh, going to school to learn. It's not something that you have to learn a whole new vocabulary. Learning that, for instance, anytime you have sugars, carbs, proteins, or lipids, or even gases um, in your food, it will help to make, uh, just an example, it'll help uh, liquids get thicker. So um, what I mean by that is when you make a sauce or when you make a batter or when you're just drinking a beverage and it's thicker than just pure water, the reason it's thicker is because the sugars or the carbs or the proteins or even the gas bubbles are getting in water's way as it rolls around in your mouth from point A to point B. So if you zoomed in on, on just a pure glass of water, water is basically just shaped like a marble. So when you swirl it around on your tongue, it's just rolling around freely and it feels thin because that water can roll and slosh back and forth pretty easily. When you, when you thicken a, a gravy with cornstarch or almond flour or whatever you might be using, what you're doing is you're throwing a bunch of carbs, which are like giant fallen tree branches, in water's path. So that is, it's trying to roll around on your spoon or on your plate or, or even in your mouth. Um, it takes a lot longer to get where it's going because of all of those obstacles. And what's amazing is, okay, great, yeah, now we know how cornstarch in Thanksgiving gravy works. But that's not just something that's particular to gravy. It's not just something that's particular to starch. That is how the thickening of everything works. So let's say that um, you are a fan of double-churned ice cream because that is – and a form of ice cream that you can have that's supposed to have like half the calories, it's supposed to have half the sugars, and so on and so forth. The way that double-churned ice cream became a thing and made such a splash on the market was because they took out a bunch of sugar, they took out, sometimes honestly they take out some of the like stabilizers and binders and, and other thickeners that people don't like to see on a label. And they replaced the thickening power. They replaced the power of those sugars and carbs and things to make stuff thick and creamy with air. Because just like the froth on the top of a beer is thicker than the beer that's below it, you can make ice cream thicker by churning more bubbles of gas, more bubbles of air into that ice cream. Because those bubbles actually fill the exact same role as that like fallen tree branch of a carb would do, where water is still trying to get from point A to point B. It's trying to flow. It's trying to make the ice cream uh, melt and move from place to place. But those gas bubbles are sort of crowding the space and, and making it harder for things to move around, which results in something that feels really creamy, even though it may be lower fat, maybe lower sugar, so on and so forth. So what I'm talking about with these examples is uh, a way of looking at food that all of a sudden exposes all of the moving parts so that you can pick and choose exactly what you want to do with them. Um, when you were talking about watermelon seeds just now, yeah, that was, that was an example we, we discussed um, at this retreat. Turns out watermelon seeds have a ton of protein. It's something that I don't think anybody's looked at before because it's, it's I don't know, it, it's counterintuitive that some little weird dinky white seed on the inside of a watermelon would carry a ton of protein. But it does. It, it, it has a, a massive amount of protein compared to uh, actually a lot of foods out there. And what that means to me as, uh, as a chef and as a person with this sort of x-ray vision approach to food is that now all of a sudden maybe 
if I'm using watermelon seeds and I grind them into a flour, um, maybe there's potential for using that in a marinade uh, to make uh, something turn really beautiful golden brown uh, on a grill. Or maybe that's the ability for me to have um, a low carb thickener for a salad dressing rather than having to use some emulsifier or having to use something like eggs if I want it to be a vegan product. It basically, looking at what that watermelon seed is made of, turns it from just a seed that you know might not really be super exciting into kind of a toolbox. And, and that is really our way of approaching food is that all of these, these ingredients uh, that we, we call ingredients with a lowercase i, like a tomato or peach or a, a piece of beef, they're, they're toolboxes built out of these eight sort of like mother ingredients that what we call the capital I ingredients. Um, and, and understanding how those capital I ingredients um, do these very simple universal tricks helps us sort through the fact that, I mean, just walking through the Whole Foods produce aisle is a mind-blowing and intimidating thing now. And, and finding these patterns that connect things really helps to simplify and make life a lot easier for people who are just trying to have good food that fits their lifestyle. For sure. And as you were talking in your presentation originally, my mind was like going off with all these ideas, especially for those with allergies, because when you broke down the foods to their building blocks and to their components of what they do in food, um, like a lot of people think it's really hard to substitute, for instance, eggs because they have a really specific purpose in foods. But if you look at the like the variety of things eggs do in a recipe, you basically could like kind of essentially pull those building blocks from other ingredients, right? Right, exactly. And let's let's use eggs as an example, right? So in Silicon Valley, there's this amazing uh, and I mean amazing in in not not necessarily in the sense of it being good, but it is it it amazes one to watch this all happen. There is this gold rush to make mayonnaise without eggs, right? If somebody would have told us that like 15 years ago that the new IP in in Silicon Valley would be how to make the best vegan mayonnaise, uh, that would be that'd be an amazing conversation to have, but. If let's say let's say you're just trying to avoid eggs and and you want to make some like creamy spread to go onto uh, a sandwich or you want to make a Caesar or ranch style like creamy salad dressing but you don't want to have eggs in the recipe. There's nothing necessarily special about those eggs except that they contain some fat. They contain some lipids that make it nice and rich. Um, they contain some protein. Uh, that is helping to uh, keep uh, a stable emulsion, you know, keep oil and water mixed together so that it can be creamy and also to thicken it so that it can be creamy. And, you know, maybe the eggs have a little bit of water. So it's got those three things. It's got some fats some protein and some water. Well, oh my gosh, we can find that in so many different foods and we can use it in so many different ways depending on the flavor of what we're trying to get after. So instead of eggs in, in like a mayo, uh, you could use uh, roasted garlic that you, you'd roast it in like coconut oil. Um, you could use uh, avocados. You could use uh, pureed okra. You could use pureed roasted red peppers. You could use uh, sun-dried tomatoes that you mashed up with a mortar and pestle. You could use uh, hazelnut butter um, if, if you had some around. You could use uh, pureed chicken livers if, if you were going for you know something that felt super paleo. The, the point is there are so many different ways to make everything 
And um, what we're talking about doing of, of swapping things in and out and giving people the ability to compensate for allergies and, and avoid certain types of food is something the food industry has done forever. It's just the things that they've been swapping out have been these like purified, isolated compounds where instead of uh, using hazelnut butter to uh, thicken a, a sauce or make something creamy and thick, they would use like refined hazelnut starch that then they chopped up into a bunch of tiny pieces to make hazelnut maltodextrin or something like that because they wanted only the thickening power from that hazelnut. Well, as chefs and as home cooks, we are lucky to be able to have delicious things like avocados and hazelnuts that have a lot of great aroma and color and other nutrients that come with them. So why not learn how to take these examples from the bigger food industry and sort of use that power for good? You know, why don't, why don't we use this mindset to be able to swap real foods in and out for what we want so that maybe if you're, if you're trying to figure out how to cook things um, that uh, don't contain gluten, maybe now this is a way for people to become less dependent on those like you know mysterious bags of white powder that they get from a health food store and and sort of take the ownership back over what they can eat. Yeah, that's such a cool concept because as a culinary scientist, you're working in this very controlled environment. But as you were talking, I found myself thinking of all these ways I could use the same kind of ideas and principles in everyday cooking. So let's go a little deeper with that. How can what you're doing as a culinary scientist help the home cook? And how would you suggest actually integrating these kind of concepts into home cooking? Well, I mean, so for the the shameless plug moment, I, I wrote a book <laughs> um, about how all of this stuff works. Um, it's called Ingredient. And the idea was basically uh, each of these eight building blocks that we're talking about, um, I gave each of them a chapter. And rather than go through and like give you the the like textbook level science of how all of these things work, I teamed up with a comic book artist <laughs> and uh, and a Nat Geo photographer to basically turn the book into an illustrated guide to getting to know the personalities of each of these capital I ingredients. So you can read through the proteins book and you can see all of the things that proteins do for you laid out in super vivid color along with examples of how uh, you know, uh, uh, shrimp ceviche is very similar to peanut butter, is very similar to uh, a chia cracker and how proteins are helping to facilitate all of those things being really tasty. So the, the idea there is that um, I, I didn't put any recipes in the book. I, I didn't want to try to tell people how they should or shouldn't cook because the thing that I've noticed from, from working as a chef and working with so many different types of clients in the industry is that now more than any time in human history, everybody's cooking a little bit different at home. Everybody has different needs based on what they can and can't have, what their family does and doesn't like. Um, where they live in the country, what season it is, and, and you know a million other factors. So what I wanted to do was give people a blueprint for cooking how they like to or have to cook, but with the lights turned on <laughs> in, in a way. So when we're talking about people cooking at home, uh, this, this x-ray vision is something that if I've done my job, should not add any extra steps to your day-to-day -day cooking life. Uh, there's been a lot, I mean, there's a lot of really great books written about um, the science of food and uh, you know, making the best possible 
uh, roast uh, turkey for Thanksgiving and, and making, you know, the greatest ever avocado toast and whatever. And, and a lot of that writing involves stopping to consult this perfect recipe, follow what are usually a bunch of extra steps, which make, you know, that, that recipe um, all the more delicious and, and basically pulling yourself out of the flow of day-to-day -day life in order to think about the science of food. The way that I, I like to talk about this stuff is on a level of just the same kind of intuition that we all have in our gut from spreading peanut butter on toast for you know three decades. <laughs> and, and what I mean by that is, uh, I think the example that I gave at this retreat was, think about when you're sauteing onions in a, in a pan. Everybody's really, really familiar with the hissing sound that that you get uh, when onions are are sort of happily um, uh, sautéing away. There is a point when you're sautéing onions when that hissing sound turns into a crackling sound. I asked a bunch of people in the room unprompted, and all of you guys said when I said when that hiss turns to crackle, what do you do? Everybody said some version of go over and look at the pan, shake it, stir it, take it off the heat, whatever. And it was this thing that like. We didn't have, nobody had to explain that the, the hissing dies off because water's gone. When water's gone, the temperature goes up. When the temperature goes up, proteins and sugars start to break down. When those proteins and sugars start to break down, they start to caramelize. If they break down too much, they start to burn. Nobody actually goes through that whole line of thinking. And I think I said it in our talk, like, if you actually do go through that line of thinking, you might be a sociopath. But uh, what, what I wanted to do was I wanted to create a bunch of very visual ways of just understanding those con those concepts um, instinctively to sort of overlay almost like a smartphone navigation onto your gut instinct so that after reading this book or, 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 or learning this type of uh, vision in the kitchen, you can go through your day and if you're trying to follow a recipe uh, that your, your friend gave you and referred to you online, you can follow that recipe better. If you're trying to come up with something just based on the four things you have in your kitchen after coming back from, from a weekend vacation, you'll be able to do that more fluidly. If you're trying to take your favorite recipe and adjust it for somebody who's coming over who can't have um, alliums or, or is avoiding nightshades or, or doesn't want um, uh, anything animal-derived in their food, all of a sudden... The, the feeling of, oh crap, now I have to start from scratch or now I have to go online and find a recipe that is exactly that starts to dissipate. It starts to fade away and you start to take a little bit more of the reins and feel more confidence in being able to execute whatever your vision is. Even if your vision is, I want uh, to spread something creamy on this toast, something that simple can be accomplished with this like terminator vision of being able to look at food and just understand what makes it good or what makes it bad and and how to work around that um, according to your household rules yeah and i'll echo i'm definitely there's a link to the book in the show notes it's available in most bookstores as well but it's absolutely beautiful and super fascinating in fact it's been a fun book to look through with my kids because it's also kind of an intro into food science and understanding these things but in a really visually gorgeous way so 
thank you for writing it. It's beautiful. Um, I also want to touch on, so you have a different perspective on food additives and quote unquote chemicals than a lot of us do. And there's kind of a reaction to all these unnatural additives in food that you've mentioned and things like carrageenan or nitrates in bacon, et cetera. And you had some interesting points on this as well. So uh, first of all, like why are those necessarily not as bad as we think in some cases? And also how are you guys getting around them with creative ways? Well, um, so, so there's in, I think one thing just to just touch on in, in my head is whether whether or not I think that like from from being a, a biochemist and also just a healthy guy, whether or not I think something is healthy shouldn't necessarily have a ton of bearing on on what everyone else thinks. I mean, the, the one lesson that we're coming away from this whole era, this really like dynamic, interesting era in our uh, cultural relationship to food is that different strokes for different folks really holds true. I mean, their personalized diet nutrition is going to be the wave of the future. So that said, um, I do think that there are certain times in, in um, our culture where we're willing to turn a blind eye to what's going on in food because of how it's been marketed, <laughs> uh, because of uh, stories that we may or may not have read on you know, Upworthy or, or whatever it might be. As a general rule, I stay away from uh, things like benzoates and, and um, uh, preservatives that are expressly included in food to kill stuff, <laughs> to kill microbes. For me, just as a general rule, any compound that its like purpose is to prevent the growth of life on Earth, like, okay, I can probably do without that in my, in, in my food. In terms of like texture modification, let's talk about that. So there are a lot of clients we work with that uh, they don't want corn, they don't want soy, um, but maybe they're okay with like tapioca if there has to be something starchy. Um, those clients are usually really, really averse to the idea of using tapioca starch. They don't want something that seems like it's been refined and processed and isolated, but they would be totally fine using a tapioca flour. Now, for me, I, I see zero difference. <laughs> I mean, in, in terms of the starch that's in that tapioca flour versus the starch that's been pulled out of that tapioca flour, not a ton of difference. But when somebody looks on a label and they see that the ingredients are almonds, tapioca, honey, and carrots, that's a very different story than if they look on the label and they see almonds, tapioca starch, or tapioca maltodextrin, honey, and carrots. There, there is a tendency in our culture to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And, um, you know, we have finally, which I, I believe this is a great thing, we have finally become awakened. We've become conscious about reading the back of labels and questioning things that we aren't familiar with, and, and rightfully so, because the stuff that, you know, our, our parents' generation was eating in the, in the 50s and 60s was probably atrocious. That said, not everything that is not everything that doesn't sound like uh, like just a carrot or or just a plum uh, is necessarily going to kill us. But the thing that we've found is that that doesn't matter. My my partners and I in 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 what we do, we're called on a lot by companies and publications and whatnot to do like trend forecasting. Figure out, oh, you know, what's going to be the new spice blend that's going to be big in three years or or. If we're very anti-sugar now and we're very anti-fat in the 90s, what, what's going to be the next thing that we need to avoid? So those, those trends are sort of a merry-go-round. And 
my hot stock tip would be uh, that within the next 10 years, we're probably going to start finding people having um, some gastric problems with all the protein that we're eating in our sort of protein craze right now. And so the pendulum will swing back towards, you know, a reasonable amount of protein, a reasonable amount of sugar, a reasonable amount of fat and carbs, and just finding balance. The one food trend that I think is actually trend proof that is never going to go away is what we're talking about here, that people are always going to feel a knee-jerk reaction of distrust for stuff that they can't understand on a food label. You know, as anti-carb as we were in the height of the Atkins craze, it was still really hard to make a, a logical discussion about why like a potato was going to kill us. <laughs> like at the end of the day, it's still a potato. It grows on the ground. We've been eating it for, for centuries. And that mindset is really our approach to quote unquote chemicals in food. When you're, when you're talking about nitrates um, as a thing that is a synthetic compound that's added to bacon to make it have its bacony flavor um, and preserve it, the thing that is going on on almost every package of uh, bacon hot dogs or even like pastrami that is labeled as uncured, you, you'll see that. I mean, once you start looking for that, you will see it everywhere. Everything that's uncured, if you flip that package over, it usually contains on the ingredient label celery powder or celery juice or just celery sometimes. Well, what happens is celery as a plant naturally fixes, it grabs onto nitrate and nitrite from the soil and it accumulates that, it like stores it up in the celery stalks so that if you just need to get some of the, the, the function of nitrate into your bacon to make it taste like bacon and make it work like bacon, you can actually get that power straight from the celery. Similarly, you know, in, in chicken breast that you buy in stores a lot of times, uh, in order to keep that chicken breast from drying out on a shelf, meat manufacturers going way back to, to again, the 40s and 50s have been adding phosphate salts to those chicken. To Phosphate basically uh, binds water. It's a mineral that binds water really well. So it keeps those chicken breasts uh, plump and juicy and honestly probably lets the meat, meat purveyors sell you more water per pound than chicken. So that is another thing. Phosphates are another thing that people are trying to avoid. Interestingly enough, phosphates are found in super high quantities in raisins and prunes and plums. So uh, we worked on a project recently where we were working on sort of like a, a Turkish style, like, uh, like rotisserie meat kind of restaurant. And they wanted it to all be super clean label, super whole food. So rather than using phosphates, uh, like some white mineral powder to keep water in that meat, we used um, prune paste, <laughs> uh, which ended up having very much the same effect um, as we would have gotten if we would have just added the isolated quote unquote chemical. And there's, there's stories about that uh, all over the industry where, um, you know, carrageenan and, and alginate and, and all of these like carb thickeners that, that people are really, really worried about, those were originally isolated from seaweed. Like they, were, they, were, they are the carbs that help seaweed flap around in the super turbulent surf in the ocean without breaking. It helps them bend but not break. And so we're like, all right, if, if we're going to make, um, let's say we're going to make like a savory granola that is going to be like sort of like a Japanese uh, flavor profile. Uh, why would we go and use like some weird syrup that carries a lot of sugar and all these sorts of things when we could just use the seaweed, the sticky seaweed itself 
if there's already going to be toasted nori in the flavor profile for this granola, why don't we use that nori and all of that natural thickening power that it has to bind the thing up in the first place and use a whole food the way that people have traditionally been using these isolated quote unquote chemicals. And oh my gosh, it, the, this, the, the trend continues. And with this sort of uh, x-ray vision that we talk about, you can kind of do it for everything. Um, if you need an antioxidant in your food, a lot of times people will put vitamin C or ascorbic acid um, on a label. You'll see that in everything from green drinks to like raisin bread. That ascorbic acid keeps fats from breaking down when they're exposed to light and air and just time on a shelf. Rather than getting that ascorbic acid in like a like isolated white powder, again, you can get it from a, a cherry. There's actually a type of South American cherry called an acerola cherry that naturally, if you if you like if you just dehydrated it, if you took all the water out, the dry, the solids that are left over, it's something ridiculous like 30% vitamin C or something like that. Um, and so people are adding cherry powder to their guacamole to keep it from turning green if they want to take it to a farmer's market. And whether or not like ascorbic acid uh, in powder form or in cherry form is actually going to hurt us, listen, I, I don't think so. But all I care about is making people happy and giving them the food that they want in a way um, that makes them feel like they're living their healthiest lifestyle. So if I can accomplish that with just using cherries instead of something I would order from a quote-unquote chemical company, I'm happy to do so. And it's a really exciting frontier in the way that our food is being made that is facilitated by understanding food from a chef and, and science perspective at the same time. It's so fascinating. So you run Pilot R&D, which is the company where you do research and development with food. Can you talk through what like a day-to-day looks like for you? What is what does food science look like on an everyday basis? Yeah. So, um, so Pilot, uh, there's there's four of us that that founded Pilot, um, and my partners and I all uh, share uh, this very interesting and very unique background of having done R and D for chefs at the highest level. So we've worked at places like the French Laundry and uh, uh, Dave Chang's Momofuku restaurants in New York and um, all of these amazing restaurants, the thing they share in common is they got to come up with cool new stuff in a hurry. (laughs) If you go to one of these restaurants, you are likely getting a brand new menu, a brand new experience that day because of how much pressure these chefs are under to take the best quality produce and meat and seafood and, and everything and turn it into a mind-blowing experience. So um, we had experience running the the engines that would help to put new things on those menus um, as quickly as possible and, and with as much flavor and as much impact as possible. And one of the things that we realized was, man, this is amazing. Like we, we have to turn over an entire menu of 47 different things in a matter of a few weeks or sometimes days or sometimes hours And yet people are taking five to seven years to get like the first hummus to market. You know, like when, when, when hummus caught on or when Greek yogurt happened or when we all fell in love with coconut water and kombucha, those were food trends that took years of trickling down and refining and figuring out how to get it onto a shelf. So, um, the function of pilot is for us to say, okay, we've, we've got a lot of experience doing this for. Um, restaurants where it's going to serve 50 people a night. With our knowledge of the science of food, can we use that to expand our reach to work on healthy, delicious food for 
the mass populace, whether that's something that's going to be uh, designing a retail product or, or helping a meal delivery service do what they do better or helping people just generate recipes and applications for all of these wonderful new ingredients that we're finding. Pilot is basically a creative engine that can be hitched to any number of things. And um, right now, I mean, uh, we work on probably about 70% of our projects are like retail products. And uh, I'd say of those, those projects, the vast majority is these like new healthy um, whole food type of products. So we're, we're looking at making new options for snack foods that are based out of, uh, based on mostly plants um, that don't taste like flavorless veggie chips. Um, we're, we're working on new options for beverages that don't have, you know, the, the 30 grams per can of sugar that sodas do, but are also aren't quite the like LaCroix, just seltzer water plus natural flavors. <laughs> we're, we're working on like middle grounds uh, to color in all the gaps that we think are left behind by, you know, uh, kombucha, which there are a couple of brands that taste great. The rest of it, I think, is crap. Um, we, you know, as, as a population, we are sophisticated enough that there's no reason that eating healthy has to taste like compromise. And a lot of what we do is we work with really exciting entrepreneurs and small and medium and even huge companies on uh, designing foods that lean into the natural tendency of what those foods are. If something wants to be crispy, don't try to make it chewy with a bunch of fake ingredients. Make make the uh, crispiness shine through in a way that feels natural. If something, <laughs> if you want to have something that goes on a shelf and hangs out for six months at Whole Foods, probably not the best idea to try to make that thing green, just because green foods turn brown. And the only way that we know of to make green foods not turn brown over the course of months in a retail setting is to add artificial colors. And since we don't want to do that, we would rather make something that was really delicious and purple. <laughs> um, so yeah, we, we work with a lot of different people, um, big and small. We work with uh, startups who are just uh, a man or a woman who is changing careers and they're done being in finance or corporate wellness or they're, they're done playing baseball and uh, they have a really great idea for a protein bar or a snack or a sauce or a beverage or they want to open a restaurant. We help those people make everything to do with the food taste really good uh, within the health and nutritional vision that they have for that brand. It's so cool. So from, I'm sure you probably have non-disclosures with some of them, but what have been some <laughs> of your favorite projects to work on? And have there been any that you just could not crack the code and you had to say like, this isn't possible the way you want it? Um, actually, one that we, we've talked about, uh, we talked about a fair bit at that retreat. One of our favorite clients um, are these guys uh, have a company called Kettle and Fire. So um, it's, uh, it's two brothers, two brothers who I think also have like four or five other brothers, <laughs> but two of their, of their brood uh, went into business together to make uh, really, really high quality, delicious bone broth. And, uh, you know, they, they take whole ingredients, they simmer them for a long time, they strain it, and then they have come up with some really interesting ways of packaging it so that uh, the quality of that product shines through even on a shelf. They came to us, um, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll not dive into specifics yet, but suffice to say that you guys out there in the world will be able to taste this stuff pretty soon. Um, we've worked with them on saying, great, here's a product that is a real success. 
and what's the next step? What's the next line of stuff that you guys can do? And, and um, a lot of what we've been doing have been looking at what this uh, bone broth manufacturing entails. Like what's left over? What are other parts of the animal that maybe aren't getting used that could so that we can make something super delicious? Yeah, but also um, create less waste. Um, also make something that's more uh, you know, sustainable, more environmentally friendly looking at what we're starting to call uh, like nose to tail CPG, like nose to tail retail foods, where chefs have been doing this in restaurants forever. They'll order like whole ducks or whatever, and, and they'll use the bones for one thing. They'll use um, all of the joints and connective tissue for one thing. They'll use the meat for, for different purposes. Why can't we do that for retail food? And so with the guys at Kettle and Fire, we're working on a bunch of new exciting products that are going to explore that idea of what can we do in a world where people are willing to try delicious whole foods of a bunch of different styles now? What can we put out there that people haven't seen before that has a lot of other fringe benefits of addressing some of these problems of waste and sustainability and health and, and so on and so forth? So um, those guys are great. We have uh, worked with a lot of people in, in this sort of paleo space lately. Um, one thing that's interesting is there are a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of conventional wisdom out there about things that you can and can't do with paleo products. And we really enjoy challenging that because when you look at, when you look at something like a coconut, man, the, the, the article that, that you guys have up of, of everything you can do with coconut oil, it was, it's, it's amazing to see that, um, because of how versatile these, these plants are. And, and we're digging in with a lot of our clients into uh, cracking the code of a coconut. Like, what are all of the tricks that a coconut can do? How far can we stretch it to do really amazing things in terms of making uh, unique textures, making unique flavors, and, and giving people really delicious food that fit the nutritional requirements that they're trying to hit? And I love that you said 70% of the people who are coming to you are in the real food and health space, which is exciting. It obviously means... Hopefully this trend is not a trend and is here to stay with the real food ingredients, but that's really cool. And I'm definitely also a fan of Kettle and Fire. I'll make sure we link to them in the show notes as well, but their broth is amazing. I've got a bunch in my kitchen and my husband had surgery this week, so he's drinking a lot of it right now. Oh yeah, nothing better. This podcast is brought to you by The Good Kitchen. Have you ever wished you could have delicious and healthy meals on the table in mere minutes? The Good Kitchen answers that problem, so they provide quality sourced meals, including healthy school lunches, right to your door. Their meats are grass-fed and pastured, and they use freshly sourced produce as well. And they don't just send you the ingredients like some delivery services. They send you the fully prepared, chef-quality meals. You can check them out at wellnessmama.com forward slash go forward slash good kitchen. This episode is also brought to you by Primal Kitchen, all the good kitchens today. It's founded by my friend Mark Sisson of Mark's Daily Apple. The Primal Kitchen is now my source for some of my favorite kitchen staples. So if you haven't tried their delicious avocado oil mayo, including their chipotle mayo, you're seriously missing out. I have made my own mayo for years and years because there were never any good options to buy that didn't have vegetable oils in them. And now there are. Primal Kitchen has completely changed that with their products. They also have some delicious pre-made salad dressings, and we use their products all the time. You can check them out at primalblueprint.com. And if you use the code wellnessmama, you get 10% off any order. 
Yeah, so definitely I would encourage people to check out your book, which is called Ingredient, Unveiling the Essential Elements of Food. Like I said, it's super fascinating and really fun even to read with your kids because you both will learn so much from it. But where else can people find you? They can find me on uh, Twitter and Instagram. Um, I have a super weird, unique Iranian name, so <laughs> I'm very easy to find. Uh, Ali Buzari on Twitter and Buzari Ali on Instagram. Um, they can find us through the Pilot R&D website, uh, which is just pilotrd.com. If, if, uh, and I, I mean, more people than ever are, have cool ideas for food products. So we would love to talk about that. Yeah, those, those two would be super fun. I, I, I actually just this last weekend, uh, got to live a lifelong dream and I got to be a guest judge on Iron Chef. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. So they can watch that if they want. I, I, the, the one last thing that I would say about the book is if you were the person that was um, really interested in chemistry and biology and stuff in high school, like obviously you're going to be into reading anything about uh, the science of how food works. If you were a person whose science has just never clicked with you or if you've just never had time to dig into it <clears throat> or if it just bores you, I would still be curious what you think because – this is, I mean, Katie, tell me if you disagree, but this was written to be human speak with the type of illustrations that can engage you and, and make you understand this stuff just in the same type of way as if I was explaining it to somebody on a podcast or in a bar. Um, it's not meant to be a return to chemistry class. And uh, yeah, the, the illustrator who did all of the, uh, the amazing renderings in this thing is a fantastic talent. His name's Jeff Delier. And uh, he, I mean, he, he does comic books and cartoons. So it's his job to tell stories visually. And uh, it, it definitely is not a dense read. And it's something that you can probably tackle in a couple of weekends. For sure. Yeah, it definitely does not seem overly sciencey. I thought it was actually fascinating read. And it opens up this whole other side of food that a lot of us never think about. And so I've been trying to figure out ways to integrate that even, I mean, I obviously cook a lot and have a lot of recipes on my own, but in going forward with new recipes and just cooking at home, even without the developing new products, it's fascinating when you start thinking in that way, all the, the things you can do in your home kitchen. So to wrap up, like what encouragement would you give to the home cook? Especially I hear a lot of women who don't think they're great cooks or think that they're just not very good at it or they never learned it. Um, what would be your encouragement to people when it comes to food and cooking and trying new things? I, I would say that there there is a level that you'll get to. I, I think going from the first time you turn onto a stove to the first time you've made something that you enjoy, that is probably the biggest hurdle. There there are some growing pains there. There are some uh, moments where you'll have a catastrophic failure, and and that's totally fine. There there's a, there's this amazing thing that happens. Um, that the best way I can uh, I can equate it is. If, if people go to the gym and they're like learning to do squats or something, there, there is a moment in, in everybody's like fitness progression where you've learned how to do a new exercise and there's in like within a week, you'll double or triple the amount of weight or the length of time that you can go doing that exercise just because you've sort of figured out how your body's put together and you figured out how to do it without crushing yourself. There, there's an analogous thing in cooking where after honestly, and it can happen in like a couple of days, if you just sit down and you try to get a sense of how hot your stove is and you, like this sounds stupid, but how salty your salt is, <laughs> just being able to taste like a, a pinch of salt and see really how much salt that is adding to your food, just figuring out like a couple of the basics 
once you get past that basic point, there is, there is a level that you can achieve very quickly where uh, you're, you're conversational in cooking. And by learning the language of how this stuff works, and, and that's one of the big benefits that when we're talking about seeing the patterns in food, just saying, oh, okay, I know now how stuff burns. I know now how stuff begins to smell bad. I know now how stuff wilts. I know now how stuff becomes too dry. If you start to get a sense of those like universal patterns, then all you have to do is just figure out how to make one thing that's good, and then you can spin that off into a million different directions. If, if you've mastered the ability to uh, like grill a steak, then something that can feel like a warm and fuzzy reassuring blanket is the way that that steak gets nice and, and brown and blackened on the outside and nice and juicy on the inside is the exact same universal you know, laws that make a grilled tomato workout or make a grilled zucchini workout. And, and because you've cooked a steak, honestly, you know a lot more than you think you know about um, cooking the next thing on that grill. Because you've baked uh, you know, cake or cookie number one, there are things that you've picked up without even knowing it. There's, there's weapons that you've added to your arsenal um, that will make the next thing that you try to cook a lot easier if you're shown which things to pay attention to. And so, yeah, there's a million things out of there. And if we were all trying to go through life learning recipe by recipe by recipe and going through each style of food from all over the world, nobody would ever get to the end. The cool thing is if you just square up to it and, and are okay with the idea of, you know, maybe a couple, the, the first week that you're cooking, things won't turn out super great, or maybe they will. But even if they don't, it's not the end of the world. After that first week, there is a crazy growth spurt that your cooking skills can go through if you just sort of start to get a sense of the currents of how things move um, in your food and start to see, oh man, this is just the same thing over and over again, whether it's a peach or a plum or a piece of bacon. And uh, yeah, that, that reassurance has always helped me. And I cook a lot with my family and my mom and my sister, like I have a younger sister who's in college. She feels so much more in control of if she wants to try a new recipe that she, she uh, got in a magazine or if uh, she forgot to pick up garlic from the store, she feels so much more capable of making something that's good and figuring out ways around that lack of garlic than, than she did before. So there is hope. The stakes aren't all that high. And uh, the, the speed, man, the, the way that we can learn about food with tools like Epicurious <laughs> And, uh, you know, all of these amazing resources that are out there, it's a lot quicker to pick up than it ever has been before. It's true. And it's such a fascinating new way to think about food as well. So I definitely would encourage everybody to pick up your book and to just delve into it and, and to learn that new language when it comes to food, because it's been fascinating for me in the about a month since I heard your presentation, just adapting my own cooking. So I would encourage others to do that as well. But Ali, thank you so much for being here. You are such a wealth of knowledge. So fascinating to hear. And I really appreciate you sharing with us. Yeah, likewise. This was a blast. Thank you. Absolutely. And thanks to all of you for listening. I'll see you next time on the Healthy Moms Podcast. If you're enjoying these interviews, would you please take two minutes to leave a rating or review on iTunes for me? Doing this helps more people to find the podcast, which means even more moms and families can benefit from the information. I really appreciate your time and thanks as always for listening.